Question 94 of Summa Theologica Secunda Secunde Treatise on the Cardinal Virtues The Virtue of Justice This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica Secunda Secunde Treatise on the Cardinal Virtues The Virtue of Justice by St. Thomas Aquinas, translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 94 of Idolatry in Four Articles We must now consider idolatry, under which head there are four points of inquiry. First, whether idolatry is a species of superstition. Second, whether it is a sin. Third, whether it is the gravest sin. Fourth, of the cause of this sin. First article, whether idolatry is rightly reckoned a species of superstition. Objection one. It would seem that idolatry is not rightly reckoned a species of superstition. Just as heretics are unbelievers, so are idolaters. But heresy is a species of unbelief, as stated above in question 11, article 1. Therefore, idolatry is also a species of unbelief, and not of superstition. Objection to further. Latria pertains to the virtue of religion, to which superstition is opposed. But Latria apparently is univocally applied to idolatry, and to that which belongs to the true religion. For just as we speak univocally of the desire of false happiness and of the desire of true happiness, so too seemingly we speak univocally of the worship of false gods, which is called idolatry, and the worship of the true God, which is the latria of true religion. Therefore, Idolatry is not a species of superstition. Objection 3 further. That which is nothing cannot be the species of any genus. But idolatry apparently is nothing, for the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians 8.4, We know that an idol is nothing in the world. And further on in 1 Corinthians 10.19, What then? Do I say that what is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything, or that the idol is anything? Implying that the answer is in the negative. Now offering things to idols belongs properly to idolatry. Therefore, since idolatry is like to nothing, it cannot be a species of superstition. Objection for further. It belongs to superstition to give divine honor to whom that honor is not due. Now divine honor is undue to idols, just as it is undue to other creatures, wherefore certain people are reproached, in Romans one twenty-five, for they that worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Therefore, this species of superstition is unfittingly called idolatry, and should rather be named worship of creatures. 
On the contrary, it is related in Acts 17 verse 16 that when Paul awaited Silas and Timothy at Athens, his spirit was stirred within him, seeing the whole city given to idolatry. And further on in Acts 17 verse 22 he says, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. Therefore, idolatry belongs to superstition. I answer that, as stated above in question 92, article 2, it belongs to superstition to exceed the due mode of divine worship, and this is done chiefly when divine worship is given to whom it should not be given. Now it should be given to the Most High Uncreated God alone, as stated above in Question 81, Article 1, when we were treating of religion. Therefore, it is superstition to give worship to any creature whatsoever. Now just as this divine worship was given to sensible creatures by means of sensible signs, such as sacrifices, games, and the like, so too was it given to a creature represented by some sensible form or shape, which is called an idol. Yet divine worship was given to idols in various ways. For some, by means of a nefarious art, constructed images which produced certain effects by the power of the demons, wherefore they deemed that the images themselves contained something godlike, and consequently the divine worship was due to them. This was the opinion of Hermes Trismegistus, as Augustine states in On the City of God 823, while others gave divine worship not to the images, but to the creatures represented thereby. The Apostle alludes to both of these in Romans 1 at verses 23 and 25. For as regards the former, he says, they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the likeness of the image of a corruptible man, and of birds, and of four-footed beasts, and of creeping things. And of the latter, he says, who worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. These latter were of three ways of thinking. For some deemed certain men to have been gods, whom they worshipped in the images of those men for instance, Jupiter, Mercury, and so forth. Others again deemed the whole world to be one God, not by reason of its material substance, but by reason of its soul, which they believed to be God, for they held God to be nothing else than a soul governing the world by movement and reason. Even as a man is said to be wise in respect, not of his body, but of his soul. Hence they thought that divine worship ought to be given to the whole world and to all its parts, heaven, air, water, and to all such things, and to these they referred the names of their gods, as Vero asserted, and Augustine relates, in On the City of God 7.5. Lastly, others, namely the Platonists, said that there is one supreme God, the cause of all things, after him they placed certain spiritual substances created by the Supreme God. These they called gods on account of their having a share of the Godhead, but we call them angels. After these they placed the souls of the heavenly bodies, and beneath these the demons which they stated to be certain animal denizens of the air, 
and beneath these again they placed human souls, which they believed to be taken up into the fellowship of the gods or of the demons by reason of the merit of their virtue. To all these they gave divine worship, as Augustine relates, in On the City of God, 1814. The last two opinions were held to belong to natural theology, which the philosophers gathered from their study of the world and taught in the schools, while the other, relating to the worship of men, was said to belong to mythical theology, which was wont to be represented on the stage according to the fancies of poets. The remaining opinion relating to images was held to belong to civil theology, which was celebrated by the pontiffs in the temples. Now all these come under the head of the superstition of idolatry. Wherefore Augustine says in On Christian Doctrine 2.20, Anything invented by man for making and worshipping idols, or for giving divine worship to a creature or any part of a creature, is superstitious. Reply to Objection 1. Just as religion is not faith, but a confession of faith by outward signs, so superstition is a confession of unbelief by external worship. Such a confession is signified by the term idolatry, but not by the term heresy, which only means a false opinion. Therefore heresy is a species of unbelief, but idolatry is a species of superstition. Reply to Objection 2. The term latria may be taken in two senses. In one sense it may denote a human act pertaining to the worship of God, and then its signification remains the same to whomsoever it be shown, because in this sense the thing to which it is shown is not included in its definition. Taken thus, latria is applied univocally, whether to true religion or to idolatry, just as the payment of a tax is univocally the same, whether it is paid to the true or to a false king. In another sense, latria denotes the same as religion, and then, since it is a virtue, it is essential thereto that divine worship be given to whom it ought to be given, and in this way latria is applied equivocally to the latria of true religion and to idolatry, just as prudence is applied equivocally to the prudence that is a virtue and to that which is carnal. Reply to Objection 3. The saying of the Apostle that an idol is nothing in the world means that those images which were called idols were not animated or possessed of a divine power as Hermes maintained as though they were composed of spirit and body. In the same sense, we must understand the saying that what is offered in sacrifice to idols is not anything, because by being thus sacrificed, the sacrificial flesh acquired neither sanctification, as the Gentiles thought, nor uncleanness, as the Jews held. Reply to Objection 4. It was owing to the general custom among the Gentiles of worshipping any kind of creature under the form of images that the term idolatry was used to signify any worship of a creature, even without the use of images. Second article, Whether Idolatry is a Sin 
Objection 1. It would seem that idolatry is not a sin. Nothing is a sin that the true faith employs in worshipping God. Now the true faith employs images for the divine worship. Since both in the tabernacle there were images of the cherubim, as related in Exodus 25, and in the church are images set up which the faithful worship. Therefore, idolatry, whereby idols are worshipped, is not a sin. Objection to further. Reverence should be paid to every superior. But the angels and the souls of the blessed are our superiors. Therefore, it will be no sin to pay them reverence by worship, of sacrifices or the like. Objection 3 further. The Most High God should be honored with an inward worship, according to John 4.24. God they must adore in spirit and in truth. And Augustine says in his Incuridian 3 that God is worshipped by faith, hope, and charity. Now a man may happen to worship idols outwardly, and yet not wander from the true faith inwardly. Therefore, it seems that we may worship idols outwardly without prejudice to the divine worship. On the contrary, it is written in Exodus 20, verse 5, Thou shalt not adore them, that is, outwardly, nor serve them, that is, inwardly, as a gloss explains it. And it is a question of graven things and images. Therefore, it is a sin to worship idols whether outwardly or inwardly. I answer that. There has been a twofold error in this matter. For some, notably the school of Plato, have thought that to offer sacrifices and other things pertaining to Latria, not only to God but also to others aforesaid, is due and good in itself, since they held that divine honor should be paid to every superior nature as being nearer to God. But this is unreasonable, for though we ought to revere all superiors, yet the same reverence is not due to them all, and something special is due to the Most High God who excels all in a singular manner, and this is the worship of Latria. Nor can it be said, as some have maintained, that these visible sacrifices are fitting with regard to other gods and that to the Most High God, as being better than those others, better sacrifices, namely, the service of a pure mind should be offered. The reason is that, as Augustine continues to state further on in the City of God 1019, external sacrifices are signs of internal just as audible words are signs of things. Wherefore, just as by prayer and praise we utter significant words to him and offer to him in our hearts the things they signify, so too in our sacrifices we ought to realize that we should offer a visible sacrifice to no other than to him whose invisible sacrifice we ourselves should be in our hearts. Others held that the outward worship of Latria should be given to idols, not as though it were something good or fitting in itself, but as being in harmony with the general custom. Thus Augustine, again in On the City of God, 6.10, 
quotes Seneca as saying, We shall adore, says he, in such a way as to remember that our worship is in accordance with custom rather than with the reality. And in On True Religion 5, Augustine says that we must not seek religion from the philosophers, who accepted the same things for sacred as did the people, and gave utterance in the schools to various and contrary opinions about the nature of their gods and the sovereign good. This error was embraced also by certain heretics, for example, the Helchesaiti, who affirmed that it is not wrong for one who is seized in time of persecution to worship idols outwardly so long as he keeps the faith in his heart. But this is evidently false, for since outward worship is a sign of the inward worship, just as it is a wicked lie to affirm the contrary of what one holds inwardly of the true faith, so too is it a wicked falsehood to pay outward worship to anything counter to the sentiments of one's heart. Wherefore Augustine condemns Seneca in On the City of God 6.10 in that his worship of idols was so much the more infamous forasmuch as the things he did dishonestly were so done by him that the people believed him to act honestly. Reply to Objection 1. Neither in the tabernacle or temple of the old law, nor again now in the church, are images set up that the worship of Latria may be paid to them, but for the purpose of signification, in order that belief in the excellence of angels and saints may be impressed and confirmed in the mind of man. It is different with the image of Christ, to which Latria is due on account of his divinity, as we shall state in the third part, question 25, article 3. The replies to the second and third objections are evident from what has been said above. Third article. Whether idolatry is the gravest of sins. Objection 1. It would seem that idolatry is not the gravest of sins. The worst is opposed to the best, as stated in Ethics 8.10. But interior worship, which consists of faith, hope, and charity, is better than external worship. Therefore, unbelief, despair, and hatred of God which are opposed to internal worship, are graver sins than idolatry, which is opposed to external worship. Objection to further. The more a sin is against God, the more grievous it is. Now seemingly a man acts more directly against God by blaspheming or denying the faith than by giving God's worship to another, which pertains to idolatry. Therefore, blasphemy and denial of the faith are more grievous sins than idolatry. Objection 3 further. It seems that lesser evils are punished with greater evils. But the sin of idolatry was punished with the sin against nature, as stated in Romans one twenty six. Therefore, the sin against nature is a graver sin than idolatry. Objection 4 further. Augustine says in Against Faustus 25, Neither do we say that you, notably the Manichees, 
are pagans or a sect of pagans, but that you bear a certain likeness to them since you worship many gods. And yet you are much worse than they are, for they worship things that exist, but should not be worshipped as gods, whereas you worship things that exist not at all. Therefore, the vice of heretical depravity is more grievous than idolatry. Objection 5 further. A gloss of Jerome on Galatians 4.9, how turn you again to the weak and needy elements, says, The observance of the law to which they were then addicted was a sin almost equal to the worship of idols to which they had been given before their conversion. Therefore, idolatry is not the most grievous sin. On the contrary, a gloss on the saying of Leviticus 15.25 about the uncleanness of a woman suffering from an issue of blood says, Every sin is an uncleanness of the soul, but especially idolatry. I answer that. The gravity of a sin may be considered in two ways. First, on the part of the sin itself, and thus idolatry is the most grievous sin. For just as the most heinous crime in an earthly commonwealth would seem to be for a man to give royal honor to another thing than the true king, since, so far as he is concerned, he disturbs the whole order of the commonwealth. So in sins that are committed against God, which indeed are the greater sins, the greatest of all seems to be for a man to give God's honor to a creature, since, so far as he is concerned, he sets up another God in the world and lessens the divine sovereignty. Secondly, the gravity of a sin may be considered on the part of the sinner. Thus the sin of one that sins knowingly is said to be graver than the sin of one that sins through ignorance, and in this way nothing hinders heretics, if they knowingly corrupt the faith which they have received, from sinning more grievously than idolaters who sin through ignorance. Furthermore, other sins may be more grievous on account of greater contempt on the part of the sinner. Reply to Objection 1. Idolatry presupposes internal unbelief, and to this it adds undue worship. But in a case of external idolatry, without internal unbelief, there is an additional sin of falsehood, as stated above in Article 2. Reply to Objection 2. Idolatry includes a grievous blasphemy, inasmuch as it deprives God of the singleness of his dominion and denies the faith by deeds. Reply to Objection 3. Since it is essential to punishment that it be against the will, a sin whereby another sin is punished needs to be more manifest, in order that it may make the man more hateful to himself and to others. But it need not be a more grievous sin, and in this way the sin against nature is less grievous than the sin of idolatry. But since it is more manifest, it is assigned as a fitting punishment of the sin of idolatry in order that, as by idolatry man abuses the order of the divine honor, so by the sin against nature he may suffer confusion from the abuse of his own nature. 
Reply to Objection 4. Even as to the genus of the sin, the Manichaean heresy is more grievous than the sin of other idolaters, because it is more derogatory to the divine honor, since they set up two gods in opposition to one another and hold many vain and fabulous fancies about God. It is different with other heretics who confess their belief in one God and worship him alone. Reply to Objection 5. The observance of the law during the time of grace is not quite equal to idolatry as to the genus of the sin, but almost equal because both are species of pestiferous superstition. Fourth Article whether the cause of idolatry was on the part of man. Objection 1. It would seem that the cause of idolatry was not on the part of man. In man there is nothing but either nature, virtue, or guilt. But the cause of idolatry could not be on the part of man's nature, since rather does man's natural reason dictate that there is one God, and that divine worship should not be paid to the dead or to inanimate beings. Likewise, neither could idolatry have its cause in man on the part of virtue, since a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, according to Matthew 7.18. Nor again could it be on the part of guilt, because, according to Wisdom 14.27, the worship of abominable idols is the cause and the beginning and end of all evil. Therefore, idolatry has no cause on the part of man. Objection to further, those things which have a cause in man are found among men at all times. Now idolatry was not always, but is stated to have been originated either by Nimrod, who was related to have forced men to worship fire, or by Ninus, who caused the statue of his father Bel to be worshipped. Among the Greeks, as related by Isidore in his Etymologies 8.11, Prometheus was the first to set up statues of men, as the Jews say that Ishmael was the first to make idols of clay. Moreover, idolatry ceased to a great extent in the sixth age. Therefore, idolatry had no cause on the part of man. Objection 3 further. Augustine says in On the City of God 21.6, it was not possible to learn for the first time, except from their, that is, the demons, teaching, what each of them desired or disliked, and by what name to invite or compel him, so as to give birth to the magic arts and their professors. And the same observation seems to apply to idolatry. Therefore, idolatry had no cause on the part of man. On the contrary, it is written in Wisdom 14.14, 14, By the vanity of men they, that is, idols, came into the world. I answer that. Idolatry had a twofold cause. One was a dispositive cause. This was on the part of man, and in three ways. First, on account of his inordinate affections forasmuch as he gave other men divine honor, through either loving or revering them too much. This cause is assigned in Wisdom 14.15, a father being afflicted with bitter grief, 
made to himself the image of his son, who was quickly taken away, and him who then had died as a man, he began to worship as a god. The same passage goes on to say at verse 21 that men serving either their affection or their kings gave the incommunicable name, that is, of the Godhead, to stones and wood. Secondly, because man takes a natural pleasure in representations, as the philosopher observes in Poetics 4, wherefore as soon as the uncultured man saw human images skillfully fashioned by the diligence of the craftsmen, he gave them divine worship. Hence it is written in Wisdom 13 verses 11 through 17, If an artist, a carpenter, hath cut down a tree proper for his use in the wood, and by his skill of art fashioneth it, and maketh it like the image of a man, and then maketh prayer to it, inquiring concerning his substance and his children or his marriage. Thirdly, on account of their ignorance of the true God, inasmuch as through failing to consider his excellence, men gave divine worship to certain creatures on account of their beauty or power, wherefore it is written in Wisdom 13 verses 1 and 2, All men neither by attending to the works have acknowledged who was the workman, but have imagined either the fire, or the wind, or the swift air, or the circle of the stars, or the great water, or the sun and the moon, to be gods that rule the world. The other cause of idolatry was completive, and this was on the part of the demons, who offered themselves to be worshipped by men, by giving answers in the idols, and doing things which to men seemed marvellous. Hence it is written in Psalm 95, verse 5, All the gods of the Gentiles are devils. Reply to Objection 1. The dispositive cause of idolatry was, on the part of man, a defect of nature, either through ignorance in his intellect or disorder in his affections, as stated above. And this pertains to guilt. Again, Idolatry is stated to be the cause, beginning, and end of all sin, because there is no kind of sin that idolatry does not produce at some time, either through leading expressly to that sin by causing it, or through being an occasion thereof, either as a beginning or as an end, insofar as certain sins were employed in the worship of idols, such as homicides, mutilations, and so forth. Nevertheless, certain sins may precede idolatry and dispose man thereto. Reply to Objection 2. There was no idolatry in the first age, owing to the recent remembrance of the creation of the world, so that man still retained in his mind the knowledge of one God. In the sixth age, idolatry was banished by the doctrine and power of Christ, who triumphed over the devil. Reply to Objection 3. This argument considers the consumative cause of idolatry. End of question 94. Read by Michael Shane Craig Lambert, L.C.